I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm here again with David S. Goyer, showrunner and executive producer, and we also have today consulting producer and writer Liz Pong in the studio. Today we're talking about Episode 8, The Missing Piece. Once again, you know the drill. Please, spoilers for the episode. If you have not watched Episode 8, go do that. Come back. We will be here waiting for you. Quick recap for this episode. It's a race against time on the Invictus. Day walks the spiral and later tells the Zephyrs of his powerful vision of a three-petaled flower. Gale takes desperate measures to escape the Raven and Hollow Harry. And it's an episode about pilgrimages, journeys, and confrontations. Um, Liz, you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we heard David tell us previously about how he he assembled this writer's room with people who have you know specific superpowers, so to speak, in terms of their uh, their writing styles and talents. What 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 was your superpower, and what was your relationship to Foundation and and sci-fi? I would say I'm not the hardest core sci-fi person, but it's funny. I started out in like more relationshipy real life stuff and then really found my place in kind of horror genre sci-fi writing because I just love like the engine that Mm -hmm. scenarios can give you for character work. And so that's like I I think um, I kind of like came on late in this process relatively to some of the other writers and was in sort of like the revising process a lot and kind of took on this maiden day story as a little bit of my baby in this season. The writer's room for season one was a very long process. And so there was like a a writer's room 1A and then like a writer's room 1B. And Liz, just like Jane Espenson, were, Liz was a writer that I had been aware of and kind of tracking for a while and I, you know, you you don't know this, but I checked in on your availability previously on other shows and things like huh. that. And so when this opening came up, I was like, check, check on Liz Pong, check on Liz Pong. And, and you were available. And that's that's how we met. And it was similar to how Jane Espenson came on the show. And at this point in the process, we were, I think we'd written eight drafts of scripts or something like that, yeah. seven or eight. But but at this point, um, it was a smaller room. And what I did was I, we, we broke off into storylines. So I said, Liz, you've got the maiden. And Liz really navigated this storyline and all the revisions on the storyline beautifully up until the big scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about later between Demerzel and Halima, which yeah. um, I think I barely touched. I mean, that's 95% what you wrote. Yeah, and also hats off to Sarah Nolan, who Sarah did, Nolan did the earlier drafts draft and well. did really yes. beautiful work yeah. on it. So I was just sort of like cohering everything and then like building onto it. Yes. Let's start with the pilgrimage on the spiral. It is so immersively shot. Liz, what did you think of the spiral when you first learned about it? Um, in the writing, when we first started writing, you know, you, David, you introduced the idea to me of the, the spiral. And again, it's like one of those things where if you picture the sort of like shoddy, cheap version or something, it's like, I was like, well, is it just like a 
racetrack, you know, where it doesn't that where, you know, the, the challenge of it, it, it wouldn't really come across. And I think I just loved how you guys executed and that like just just really selling like how long it takes and how especially with no water um, or shoes, you would really kind of be on the verge of death. And, yeah, we yeah. we um, it's like if the Grand Canyon were a spiral yeah. and you needed to walk through the Grand Canyon without any water yeah. and without any shoes or without an imperial aura <laughs> right. or nanobots. We always knew that um, we wanted to take the character day and really break him down physically and emotionally. And Lee, who plays day was, was very keen on that idea as well. And was just, training and training and training and training and eating like a handful of berries <laughs> every day for a you month. You can tell. You can yeah. tell. And and um, we knew that we wanted to find for the latter part of the journey a location that was pretty hard to navigate in as well. So uh, I, I'm. this was shot also in Fort Ventura, but on the opposite end of the island, from where we were shooting Terminus City, and it required Lee and another unit to go off there as their own sort of little pod for a couple of days. And it was physically difficult. He was wandering around in the sun, you know, um, for 10 hours at a time. Also, um, the actor that plays Eskel is is a lovely man who I named Michael Elwin, who I had previously worked on a show that I had done called Da Vinci's Demons. And he was always the person that I had in mind to play Eskel. And so I, he, and he's over 75. And I asked if he were available and he was, and I called him up and I said, I I know it's COVID and all of this, and there wasn't a vaccine. Are you, are you willing to come from uh, England and quarantine for 14 days <laughs> and then um, spend a couple of days in the hot sun with Lee Pace and God bless him. He did. And and he was lovely. And um, it's nice when that works out because he's, he's such a beautiful performer and he was just the guy that I always had in mind to play that role. Did you work in one of these factories? No, I was a loader loading boxes onto jump ships. Mm. Magnificent machines, aren't they? Oh, sure. Of course, I'd never actually been on until I came here. Used all my savings to book my passage. From Baltros. You must have taken one as well. Yes. Also my first time. I've been, you know, thinking about this scene ever since I watched it and, and on rewatch. It is, this is, I think you could argue, like the first real human to human connection that day has ever experienced completely how is he processing this information from Eskel? like how how is he receiving this because this he's give Eskel is giving him entree to a corner of the galaxy though he knows the planet it's clear that like day-to-day life there this is news to him understanding what a person's actual experience there is is news to him well that was the, the purpose of that storyline was to get day out of his comfort zone in every way, shape, and form. Uh, To have him make a jump, which he'd never done before. To have him meet uh, in the form of Halima, a woman who he doesn't know how to 
navigate around. And then in the case of the spiral, he's he's walking it anonymously. Yeah. And so he's never had that experience where people are bumping into him and mm-hmm. he's got someone like Eskel talking to him as if he's just right. some other schmo. Right. And you could see him thinking, remember to disintegrate the guy whose shoulders passed and, me. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, completely. But that was the whole point of the story. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Liz, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I love that that interaction like really shows that Day is really uh, sheltered in a way. Like mm-hmm. he has never left the planet. He's incredibly protected. And I, what I also, I love about that interaction, it's like, like you were saying, I think it is maybe the purest interaction he's ever had with anybody ever. And I love that he's like kind of just normal and kind. Like he, he you see his instinct is, it's like, oh, don't, don't just lay down. Like, yeah. what are you doing? It's and like, a tricky story because he is clearly on some level. Well, first, he's just curious and baffled by yeah. Eskel as to why anyone would bother mm-hmm. spending their life savings to make this pilgrimage. And and um, and he just doesn't understand the idea of having faith in an afterlife or anything like that. You know, he's always grown up to believe that this is it. And so you have to make the most of it. And at a certain point in the storyline, the rule we came up with was you you can put I think, touch one, one knee, knee. Mm-hmm. but not both. And if if you touch both, it's over. And he goes down on one knee day and he's almost going to drop his other knee. And then this old man, this stranger that he doesn't know, offers him a hand and he's clearly moved by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then he also does something really horrendous at the end of the episode. And we talked about that a lot in the room is that I kind of wanted both. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's what works so beautifully about the whole story as a whole. It's like he is such an asshole. He's so selfish. In a way, this is all to just like stick it to Halima if you yeah, can. Right? Yeah. yeah, completely. But at the same time, I do think there is something in him that is authentically seeking in this Absolutely. in this exercise. And Absolutely. like authentically curious. And that's why the end is, I think, so devastating, well, even though you really hate him for what he did to Samarzal. But it, it's it's back to that idea that these clones are desperately seeking to individuate themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think unconsciously he saw this as an opportunity to go off world to mm. like get some spiritual knowledge to in, individuate himself. But I think in a way empire these clones you know they've got this armor in this palace and and the dynastic cohort are sort of the imperial guard around them and i think it's all just this kind of massive shell to stave off the existential horror that they feel every waking day which is that not only are they going to die but they're not i think they subconsciously feel less than even just the rest of us yeah he uh day takes off his imperial aura the the force that protects him he is more vulnerable than he has uh, ever been and we were talking about his connection with Eskel, but there's also the physical connection you mentioned Eskel reaching out a hand to him mm-hmm. and then uh, right. a day uh, touching Eskel. this is again probably certainly the only time he's ever been touched in kindness physically well, well or at least touched in kindness where there wasn't a quid pro quo. Right. There was, right. You know, where it wasn't a concubine or something like that who was being paid to do it. I, it's also the first time he's probably ever gotten a blister or gotten sunburned. Yeah. You know? 
Um, where did the religious inspiration for this tenet of the luminist faith come from? Well, we always talked about it being a pilgrimage and in that regard, being akin to a pilgrimage to Mecca. And I can't remember if I talked about this in the room or not, but I, when I was younger, when I was in my late 20s, I went to Tibet mm. for six weeks. It was an incredible trip, but also a very physically and emotionally arduous trip. And at one point, we were way off the beaten path. There's, and the name of the lake escapes me, but there was a holy lake in Tibet that was known, people would would circle it. And um, there was also a cave there at the end of it in which a man was living in the cave and he'd taken a 10-year vow of silence. Wow. And he literally like a hermit in a cave and you could go see him. You were allowed to see him and he would make you yak butter tea. And I remember sitting in this cave with this guy and nodding and and who's in this cave for 10 years. And I was just, I had never growing up in the West in the Midwest had just never experienced anything mm. like that. So that was my tiny, tiny, tiny version of getting sort of smacked in the face by a tenant or belief system, a sort of way of life that was so alien to me. And so I'm sure some of that, I don't know if I ever talked about it in the room informed, you know, that, but I, I, it was an open question. What do you remember about it? Well, I think we were talking definitely about, you know, this is sort of a female oriented religion and a lot about reincarnation and just like the idea of declaring that day is soulless right mm. is such a in a way it's just sort of a political move and and i was trying to think about like well what does it actually mean that day doesn't have a vision right it's like is are we saying that he's somehow like as we as a show like that he's less than or soulless and i don't i don't think so and i think what i i the I connected him in this episode in a way of like, I think we've all had that experience where like everyone is telling you like, oh, do this thing. You're going to, you're going to see God or whatever. Take, like, take ayahuasca, yeah. whatever, yeah. It Any of it, whatever like, it is. Even like a meditation, you know, people can say like, oh, it changed, changed everything. And, and then you go into something and you're like, okay, I think, I hope I have the experience and, and you just don't. And then you inevitably, I think like, it's like, is something wrong with me? And I, no. But I think just in the context of this story, he he so needs mm. that validation in a bigger picture sense and, and isn't getting it. And then out of that retaliates that sort of it proves, you know, the, the, the worst read you could have, which is that he is a horrible person, you know. He, yeah. The question is, he, you know, I remember saying, I, I, I really want to play with the audience's emotions in this episode, mm. right? I want them to identify with him. I want them to want Day to succeed. He goes into the cave. Then afterwards, in front of the uh, Ring of Zephyrs, he describes a vision. It took the form of a stem with three large petals. I worried that I was imagining it, but it was real. And because of the vision, he gets this sort of political victory. And then I wanted to reveal that 
he cheated yeah. on the vision and that he cheated by co-opting essentially Demerzel's belief. But then on top of it, he decides, even though he's won and he's he's defeated Halima, to have Halima killed. He has a run up but, the score. But it, gets, but it gets worse. And I always wondered, like, would he always have killed her? Mm. Or did he kill her because he didn't have a vision? Like, literally, mm, that's wow. he, because he didn't have a vision. But then on top of it, he has his robot, who is a believer, kill her and orders her to do it. So it's just these horrible transgressions, you know. I, I, what it was so effective to me about it and is really, truly diabolical, is, as you said, you, you really feel for day. And in the end, he has experienced these real uh, moments of, of kindness and empathy. And he weaponizes those moments. Com- completely. In the most effective way yeah. uh, and the most really cruel way that you could imagine. Let's talk about that um, vision. Is that Was that something that he had been thinking about all the time? Like, I'm going to get there. I'm either going to have the vision or I'm not. And then if I don't, I'm going to deploy this We story. debated that. And um, I, I can't remember. What was your memory of that? I don't quite remember, but I, I definitely like... At least in watching it, because it's been a while <laughs> since I worked on it. I think I, two years. I, I feel like he legitimately was hoping to have his own vision. I, I think and then so in too. The failure. Yeah. He was like, "Okay, here's I'm, this thing I can I'm gonna, pull out of my I'm ass." I'm going to vamp, yeah. right? Because when he's first in episode six, sitting down watching Demerzel tweak her face, and he clocks the birthroot flower there. And I was very particular with Jen Pong, who directed Six, saying, you, you need, I need you to get this insert of the flower <laughs> mm. from Day's point of view. Because she didn't really know where the story was going. I was like, trust me, I need, I need you to get it. I remember we, on that day, we ran out of time and we didn't get it. And they were like, oh, we don't need I was like, no, we need this shot. <laughs> we really need this shot. This is my favorite episode of the season because... I was just really proud of the fact that we could do this crazy, muscular sci-fi show. But then I, what I'm hoping the audience gets out of it is are they, they, these sort of philosophical meditations yeah. that are really deep in a way that I think a lot of genre movies and shows don't typically go there. And, and I think, for me at least, that's the thing I'm most proud of with what we've been able to do with this season is kind of go places that I genuinely don't believe the audience will expect us to go. Yeah, one of the real surprising moments uh, is Demarzel's plotline from The Maiden. She goes to see Zephyr Halima, and uh, of course she is a luminist herself. It's clear that she has a lot of warm feelings for Zephyr Halima, but of course she's been sent there to assassinate her. I'm not going to leave this room alive, am I? That's the only reason you told me the truth. Like Empire, I do not have individuated sentience. So I too must not be in a possession of a soul. If I were, then perhaps I could disobey his commands. Talk about that scene. It is unexpected and... I just end up feeling for both Halima, who 
meets her end with such grace and with Demarzel, who has been put in an awful position, the worst. Well, I think, you know, her character, I think, is the one that is developed at the slowest rate over the course of the season. And it was very deliberate. But if you do it right, I think it's just a kick in the heart. Yeah. And it's funny because Lara, who's from Finland, she auditioned with that scene. Wow. And um, she did a, a, a screen test with that scene. And I remember sitting, I don't know, eight feet away from her while she did that. And I I cried during her audition. And so because of COVID, from the time she had auditioned to the time she actually filmed it, I think it was like 20 months later. Wow. And so she was so freaked out about accessing those emotions again. But it's funny when we were doing the sound mix for this episode, watching the scene again, I completely choked up again. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very moving scene. It's almost a battle for Demarzel's soul in this, yes. in this scene. She reveals that she walked the spiral herself 11,000 years, 11, 11, years ago. 11,000 years ago. Had a vision that changed the way she sees the world. Liz, what... Uh, Take us through writing this scene. And yes, Sarah Nolan absolutely did the first draft of it and and Liz did the revisions. So credit where credit is due. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think in the writing, it just you needed to land like that moment when Halima understands, Mm. oh, like I am about to die. And I think we probably tried ones where that was maybe more written out. But that's one of those things where it's like when you have amazing actors, they can play that kind of moment just like with le- sort of less is more I the believe words. We, I believe we cut some dialogue before we filmed it because yeah. you just didn't need it when you had these two incredibly powerful actresses doing the scene. Mm-hmm. I also remember like, I think I struggled with like, I, I can be a little bit of a lot, like if, if the logic doesn't add up to me, I get... Definitely. I, it bugs me. <laughs> I, Liz, Liz will bring something up and I'll be like, who cares? I just felt the strength and a weakness as, yeah, a, as a writer. Absolutely. Um, but I think I think what we landed on in our, her Demerzel articulating in some way the rules that govern her, where mm. she's saying, like, even if you I let you run away, basically, like, my wiring would overtake me and I would, I would yeah. tear you to pieces is so devastating, but also a good logical explanation for her sort of her day-to-day you know bind well and now and i think it's this episode where you understand this crazy and unique form of torture that demerzel yeah endures which is that she has you know we decided she has a soul she has thoughts she has feelings that are her own but then she has this this set of rules, this programming that sits atop it that in some instances will literally take over her body and force her to do things that she doesn't want to do, mm-hmm. which is just terrifying, especially knowing how long lived she is. And I love how that informs, like the, to me also this episode is like a beautiful, disturbing portrait of like her relationship with Day in a way that is sort of a mother-son relationship, in mm. a way it's, a, it's like a take on a romantic relationship. And where, like, on t- I think on top of 
that he didn't have a vision and that disturbs him. But I think he's also like, why does he have her kill Halima? He goes through life suspecting and fearing that he's less than. Mm -hmm. And then he has this person or this robot who is at least 11,000 years old. And And is is a constant reminder that he is less than. Exactly. Whose job is literally to usher him in and out of life. Yeah. And I think... You know, there there is the blow in the previous episode where she kneels, yeah. and that's a reminder, like, oh, she has uh, things going on, and a whole eternity of lifetime of, that going on before me and after me, and I hate that. Yeah, part of me thinks he had Halima killed because he didn't have a vision, but he definitely had Demerzel kill Halima because he resents the hell out of what she represents. It's a test of faith then yeah. in a major way where he where Day wants to see is the imperial drive right. still sitting atop all of this. Yeah. And right. so yeah. I can still command you to do something you don't want to do. So I'm I'm your God. But I also love and I don't even remember if this might have been a more recent edition. But when he's he's carrying around her bracelet, you know, yeah. salt yeah. jewel. Yeah. I love that as a reminder. Like he that's a. Loving, I think, positive it, 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 or, or complicated. It but like, is complicated, but there's also a moment where she's briefing him on the spiral stuff, and and then he says, "Give me your bracelet," and then and then he yanks the yeah. little salt crystal off, and you see her sort of flinch. Mm-hmm. And but he does use it and does give him strength later on, and then he gives it back to her, and it's I just love how wonderfully complex and fucked up if I can say that or effed up if you're going to beat me or whatever you're going to do. It's just, to me, this episode, I just loved it. Uh, The capper on this, so Day is telling Demarzel to do this, has told her to do this, has has, um, underlined his dominance. But then at the end of this conversation, this debrief that they have, the end of the episode, she says, you know, I pit, I'm glad that you had that vision. I pity anyone who doesn't yeah, have a vision says, there. She, she and, knows that he stole it from her. You had a vision? A robot? I did. And I am pleased that you were graced with one as well. Seeing nothing, I would not wish that emptiness on anyone. It felt like a real shoving in of the dagger from Demarzel. Like, that is the most free thing that she has done in centuries, is to say this, that she knows is a direct criticism of of Empire. Yeah, she's she's throwing shade. Because she knows he didn't have one. And then, and originally this episode was going to end with the Invictus blinking out, and that is what happened. I think that was how it was written, and that was the first cut. And we were sitting around talking in post-production and we said, wow, the really bold way to end this episode is truly on this as existential question. Yeah. And so this, as he's being prepared to go back into sleep by the spacers and, and make this jump, you know, we'd push in on him and then we cut back to the, um, to the womb, to the cave and you hear Demerzel's words again, and then you see that he actually saw nothing. And then um, our 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 colorist um, Tony, he made this pitch, which was so wonderful. So the first time when he sees the vision, it's very colorful. Mm-hmm. And then he pitched that we desaturate the cave mm. 
the second time when we go back, there was like the idealized version of what it should have been and then the reality of what it was. And he's just sitting there naked and cold in this cave, hearing the dripping and just thinking, am I, am I going to see something? And, and he didn't see anything. And then the episode just ends, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. Because like, I think when I first saw that cave, I gasped. Like, it's so beautiful. And it's it's like that visual confusion of like, Am I seeing into There's lower space? There's a pool space? of water that reflects. Yeah. Yes. And so, then he steps into it and you're like, oh my God, it's just a pool. It's like that location is that was killer. One of, that was an instance where I we were location scouting in the Canary Islands in January of 2019. And I was like, where are we going to find this cave? Where are we going to find it? We looked in Malta. We looked in Ireland. And I remember with our location scout, she had taken us to this one cave that just didn't work. And then we were going to this other island, Lanzarote. And I said, come on, there must, there must be some, it's a volcanic island. There must be some other caves here. Aren't there any lava tubes? I remember like throwing. And then she said, well, yes, there is a lava tube. And I was like, well, where's that? And she said, well, you know, they call, and yes, now that I, there is a green cave, they call it. And I said, well, how far away is it? <laughs> 40 minutes. And I remember my, my line producer going, oh, come on. Like, we don't have time. And I said, no, I want to see it. And we walked in and I was like, what the hell? Like, how, how could you not have thought of this cave? You know, because it's so unique. And, and it was difficult to get to because most of our filming was on, we're on two separate islands, not on this island. And I just dug my heels in and I said, nope, you've got to send a unit. It's too special not to film. Let's go to uh, Salvor and Farah and the Anacreans on the Invictus. Uh, the episode starts with a flashback to Farah's childhood. We see her brother. We see the moment that Empire bombards Anacreon. Um, you really understand everything about what Farah is doing from this. It, it's This was a scene that I always wanted to do because in episode two, you see Empire effectively destroy these two planets, Anachron and Thespis, from space. And um, I had always envisioned it as being this kind of operatic, almost orgy of violence, but but strangely beautiful. And I didn't want to show any of the victims. But it was always our intention that in episode eight, we would go back and show that from ground view and show it through Farrah's eyes. Farah says to Salvor, you simply have no concept of revenge. The Empire wiped out half your world. If you strike a Trantor, the entire Outer Reach will suffer. You simply have no concept of revenge, do you? I don't care about mankind. This ship is going to be my voice. What do the rest of the Anacreans, because this is obviously incredibly personal for Farah, what do the rest of her Anacreon strike team think about this mission? Are, I mean, they, are they on board to the level that she is on board with it? The intention was, yes, they largely felt that this was a suicide mission. Where things get wishy-washy is Farah 
believes that there's no path forward for their people, for their race. And she's, in fact, convinced them of that. And then the way that Salver creates a wedge, particularly with the Rowan character, is by saying, I think there is a path forward. And in the back of my mind, The Anachreans was a story about radicalization. You know, how, how, you, how you take someone and radicalize them. And it's tricky because that's something that we've seen happen, obviously, in our own world. And, and that's, in a strange way, Day would have been better off if he just completely destroyed both planets and committed genocide. Yeah. And I'm not advocating that as a character choice. But I'm just saying, but by half destroying them, he radicalized them. Um, This this ghost ship, where did you come up with this this kind of inspiration for this idea? Well, the ghost ship, um, there there is a an old imperial ship in the first book of Foundation, Mm -hmm. and I think it's even the Anacreans that find it. So that the the genesis of that did come from Asimov. But I also just like ghost ships. <laughs> and so I, I, we always talked about it being kind of like a flying Dutchman of space. And this storyline was the most challenging in terms of our budget. I, I, I still think we pulled off some cool stuff. There are other things that we wrote that we couldn't pull off. <laughs> um, but I just like the idea of, you know, yes, Farrah wants to get on the ship because it's this massive weapons platform. It's got a jump drive that she thinks she can reactivate, that she can use it as a weapon um, and and take it into the heart of Trantor. But what I found interesting, and there's this sort of background mystery, is what the hell happened to this crew? Right, there's talk of a mutiny. Yeah, there's a mutiny, but then this ship disappeared 700 years ago, and... There were these rumors of it appearing throughout the galaxy. And what we discover is that its jump drives were malfunctioning. And it has been blinking in and out and blinking in and out and blinking in and out. So I also like the idea that when Salver and Farrah and the rest of them board, at any moment this thing could jump away again. Let's go to the Raven where Gale is faced with an impossible choice. Either get answers through uh, Hollow Harry's mansplaining or don't get (laughs) answers. Uh, She's fed up and she's like, you have to level with me now. No more half-truths. Tell me everything or I'm ending the journey now. I mean it, Harry. If I do, I risk destroying the second foundation before it's even been created. Tell me. You have no idea what you're doing. Liz, how does what is going through Gail's mind at this moment? She is faced for the first time with some the real unsavoriness of Harry's ego, his intellect. This person who was a mentor to her is now her captor. And she goes to a place where she is prepared essentially to risk her life to escape. Where is she at emotionally and and in her mind about this person who she once looked up to. Yeah, I mean, she's had this enormous crisis with him, and it's, you know, I love how, I mean, her story is mostly just playing out on this ship. It hasn't been that long. It's been long right. in the for her. life for of the her. show, but right. for her, it's all very happening very quickly. 
And, you know, it's this massive betrayal. And I think it is so powerful that she's ready to kill herself. But I guess it's like she she's sort of betting on that, like, she can reach him. And I think that emotionally. is... Emotionally. Yes. Yeah. And for me, in in working on the season, I think that was always, like, a challenge of, like... Because I think not being a one of a, a book person of, of the foundation books like harry as a character can sometimes it's like the, the bad version would be very pedantic and boring and you would hate him and yeah. that would be it yeah and obviously like you david you wouldn't have let that happen but i think every moment where you know we're playing him as a person who's you know understands pain and 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 has questions himself is great and i love so i love that moment at the when she's leaving where she's he says right like i could i yeah, could, I could just, send it anywhere yeah yeah but then we know, we can see that he doesn't do that and why you know i think because he he can recognize his mistakes i think and that how badly he has hurt her and he's willing to just say like all right so this is i think the second time where we see harry really fly into a rage. Episode one, he says, but you must! Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the trial. but And that felt, you know, uh, even at the time and as the show went on, like a performance. Yes. This time, as he's like, what are you doing as she's about to destroy the, the heat transfers, is, that is true surprise from him. He's, he's not used to feeling this way, right? Well, he's, <sighs> I mean, one of the things that we, one of the stories that we wanted to tell between the two of them is that he humans are messy. Yeah. You can he can't control everything and even somebody as smart as he can't control everything in the same way that the empire can't control everything. Yeah. And and so there's there's a certain point where you have to let the messiness in. I think there's another issue with Harry that we'll explore in the future is he he also has some issues with trust and with expressing vulnerability. And I don't want to say too much more because that's a spoiler. (laughs) Well, uh, let me ask both of you, how can Gail trust again after this? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she might need to encounter some other, other people. Yeah. Well, it is time for another game of Building the Foundation. This is our speed round uh, where I will ask you questions. Uh, and Liz and David, you will give me the, uh, the pithiest answers you can to these uh, questions that have been uh, nagging us. Are you ready? Okay, I think so. Something to build upon. You're allowed to build your foundation. foundation. What is Harry now? What is his state? Is he a hologram? Is he solid? Is, uh, is he a perfect recreation of what he was? I think. And maybe yeah, go, go for it. He's, he is AI. So he is contained in like what I picture as like a data drive. And, a, and then he's being projected yeah. inside the Raven be- that is equipped to do that because it was his... Ship, meant to right? be his ship, yeah. yeah. Is that right? Yeah, uh, and uh, but I think he's a slightly because the download or the upload rather um, was interrupted mm-hmm. by Gale's arrival. It's like a ninety 
0.7% accurate copy of his consciousness. Mm. It's it's a little corrupted. We see... Uh, that wasn't a short, pithy answer. It's okay. For either of us. It's okay. We see in the uh, the opening of this episode, once again, the, the bombardment of Anacreon. What what kind of uh, weapons were those that were used to devastate Thespis and, and Anacreon? My God, I actually worked this out at one point from the Imperial ships. <laughs> I don't remember. We actually we actually talked about this with our VFX vendors. Like, what what are those missiles that are being fired? I think they're antimatter missiles. I can't help you here. <laughs> <laughs> um, a day on the pilgrimage, it he is able to, uh, you know, withstand this intense punishment of of the environment there in the maiden. Was Cleon the first also that fit? I would argue that this day is probably pretty damn identical mm-hmm. to Cleon the first at that age. I mean, I I would think that that. They they would see that as a point of pride, in terms of you know doing the same physical regimen, maintaining the same diet. Um, how did you, in terms of like the old tech of the Invictus versus the kind of newer tech of the Raven, d- does one have like a better AI system than yeah. the other? Yeah, uh, the idea is that the Invictus had a really sort of clunky, primitive AI and sort of clunkier primitive weapons, but they're obviously still very powerful. Uh, obviously, no spacers back in those days, in the days of the Invictus. Did that ship just burn through navigators? Yeah. Yeah, that was the idea. They would sign up knowing, you know, they'd come out of it brain damaged or whatnot, and, you know, maybe they could navigate for a month, and their brains would be fried, but but their family's bank accounts would be fat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they had a good mention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then finally... What is in the vault? The vault on Terminus, what's in there? Frozen yogurt? I don't know. (laughs) A a, a lot of shade carpet and Eames lounge chairs. (laughs) (sighs) Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast. Produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmud Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Maloney is our senior editor, and Hannes Brown mixed this episode. Our composer is Carly Bond, and I am Jason Concepcion. David, Liz, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. See you next time. <laughs>